Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Well, good morning, Ritman Grace Brethren Church. How are we doing this morning? It's good to be here with you, as uh, Dave mentioned earlier, during this uh, unexpected uh, winter weather. I don't know what you want to call it. It's in transition mode. So we're all in this weather transition mode together. We all want to get outside and start our, our spring cleaning, but we got to wait. So it is what it is. Um, my name is Clark, and I'm the pastor here. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to meet you, and I'd love to meet your family if we haven't got a chance to connect yet. So feel free to stick around in the lobby after service. Uh, if we have met, love to just catch up with you and see how things are going in your world, and uh, maybe you can uh, bring me up to speed. We are going to be continuing in our current sermon series titled Seven Signs in John's Gospel. And just to recap a little bit, if you're just now uh, jumping in with us, or if you're uh, you have been with us uh, throughout this series. Let me just kind of review a little bit. Um, John, the, John the Apostle, the author of this book of the Bible that we've been studying together, what we've been saying is that he wants us to know who Jesus is. And he is pretty all cards on the table, straightforward. Like that is the purpose in him writing this gospel. And he wants us to know Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, he performed a number of these things that we uh, call signs. We asked the question at the beginning of this study, what does a sign do? I mean, just think about it. What is the purpose of a sign? A sign points beyond itself. It points to something more important. It points to something more significant. And so when we are reading and studying these passages in John, whether it's Jesus turning water into wine or whether it's Jesus walking on water, we said, we need to ask the question, what is this sign pointing us to? What is this sign signifying? Uh, we said, what is the bigger and more important thing that this sign is showing us? And once we ask that question, the details of the story, they start to matter in new ways. The purpose of John's gospel, he actually tells us at the very end of the gospel of John, chapter 20. He says this, Jesus performed many other signs, there's that word again, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the purpose John is writing this is so that we would see that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is not just some moral philosopher. He's not just some teacher, because if that was the case, then it doesn't matter whether we listen to what Jesus says or not. But if Jesus is the Son of God, and He is, then that has huge implications for our lives. In other words, when it comes to these seven signs that we're looking at in John, there's more than what meets the eye. They're perceived with eyes of faith. In other words, not everybody is going to be able to see these deeper realities of these seven signs. It's going to be through the lens of faith that we can see these realities that God gives us through his word, and we get the faith to see that through Jesus. That's what this series is all about. Our hope and our prayer, uh, my prayer for you, is that this would be a life-transforming discovery, whether you're somebody who has been following Jesus for a really long time, or whether you're somebody here online investigating Jesus. 
uh, we get to have a front row seat of seeing how these different miracles reveal the person of Jesus because ultimately all of these seven signs that we look at and study are going to point to him. So far what we've looked at is the following signs. In week number one, you might remember, uh, we looked at John chapter 2 where Jesus turns the water into wine. Uh, the week after that we looked at the royal official and his son. If you were here last week, you might remember we talked about the healing at Bethesda. Uh, today we're going to continue the study and we want to look at the fourth sign where Jesus feeds the 5,000. Really amazing, famous uh, story in the New Testament. We get to look at that here this morning. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself wondering what to do when my faith is tested. Can anybody relate to that? When I'm feeling overwhelmed because I'm faced with an unexpected problem, when I simply just do not have what it takes to meet a need. Now, I'll be honest with you, I think back to the time in my life where I just decided, as it relates to using drugs, as it relates to drinking alcohol, I thought to myself, enough is enough. And I thought to myself, I'm ready to be done with this because it's clearly destroying not only my life, but the lives of people that are close to me. But I remember thinking, and maybe not saying it in this exact way, but I remember thinking something along the lines of, but God, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what my next step is. And I didn't know what to do. In fact, there's still times in my life where things are, are better, but there's times where I just don't know what to do. But what I've come to realize is that Jesus knows what to do. He always knows what to do. And that's what we're going to see here this morning. I imagine you have found yourself in situations where you aren't sure what to do either. Where you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what to do. For some of us, maybe we think, Lord, I don't have the strength to get through this season in my life that I'm currently in right now. Maybe that's where some of you are. Others of us, we might think, I don't have the time to invest into this new project at work or this new project at school. For some of us, it's, Lord, I don't have the emotional or mental fortitude to deal with this challenge that you've placed in my life right now. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. The bottom line is this, though. Uh, here's the common denominator that we all share. We all come to a place where we feel like we're stretched and at the end of our rope. And you just go, Lord, I don't know what to do. Can anybody relate to that? Well, the good news is that we are not the first people to struggle with this. Jesus' disciples, Philip, uh, specifically Philip and Andrew this morning, we're going to see that they struggled this way as well. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, and as you're turning there, let me just try to frame this up a little bit. We learn that Jesus, in this passage, kind of towards the middle, we see that he looks up and he sees this great crowd of people coming towards him. And this was not unusual. When word about the miracles and the signs that Jesus was performing, as that got out, these signs that Jesus had been doing, as people learned about that, wherever Jesus went, in Galilee, there was these large crowds that were following him because they're hearing about these miracles that he's doing. Jesus was away from Galilee. Uh, Galilee is in the north. If you look back to chapter 5, that's where we were last week. All of chapter 5 takes place in Jerusalem, which was much further south. 
And now Jesus is back in the north. He's in this rural area of Galilee by this beautiful lake. So if you could just imagine that. And word had gotten around that Jesus is back and that there are these, this huge crowd that is gathering. And one of the 12 disciples, John, uh, the one that wrote this gospel that we're reading, the author of this gospel, he was an eyewitness of those events. It's especially to the event that we're looking at today, the feeding of the 5,000. And so what John does is he reports what he heard and what he saw. So with all that in mind, break in with me. John chapter 6, verse 1 says this. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee. That is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So I want you to notice, Jesus went up on a mountainside, the Bible says, and he sat down with his disciples. John is one of those disciples. And just think about the immediacy of the eyewitnesses here. John is sitting on this mountain and he's watching Jesus. And as he is watching Jesus, he notices the the movement of Jesus' head. It says in the middle of this passage, Jesus looks up and he sees a crowd coming towards him. Now, John's eyes are where? They're on Jesus. Jesus' eyes are on the people. So I just thought to myself, you know, as John's eyes are on Jesus, our eyes should be on Jesus too. What we're going to see today is that there's a lot of things that we can learn about the crowd that we can learn about the disciples. We will learn about that, by the way. But at the center of this story, John's eyes are on Jesus. And our eyes should be on Jesus, too. Why? Because we already said, the Gospel of John was written so that you might believe that Jesus is Christ, that you would have life in his name, so that your faith would not only be formed, but it would also be sustained. So today I want to give you three observations that we see about Jesus in this text. I want to look at how Jesus knows what he's doing, Jesus can be trusted, and Jesus can never be manipulated. Jesus knows what he's doing, Jesus can be trusted, and Jesus can never be manipulated. Let's look at that first one together. Jesus knows what he's doing. Notice what it says in verse 5. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him. For he already had in mind what he was going to do. So again, just imagine this really large crowd coming towards Jesus. Verse 10 tells us that there was about uh, 5,000 men. And we can reasonably assume that there were a similar number of women. And it's possible that there were a couple children for every man and woman in the crowd. So if that is the case, you're looking at a region of about 20,000 people. Now, Philip, Philip was from Bethsaida. And we actually get that information from back in chapter 1, verse 44. But Bethsaida was the nearest town to the desert area to which Jesus had gone. And so Philip, he was somebody who was on his own home turf. This was his stomping grounds, so to say. He was in his own backyard. This was an area that Philip knew. And so Jesus, what he does is he looks to Philip... And he says, Philip, you're from around here. You know this area. Where are we going to be able to buy some bread so that these people can have something to eat? 
And now just think about this. This is an interesting question. Why would Jesus ask Philip that question? Especially when we learn in verse 6 that Jesus had already had in mind what he was going to do. He knew that he would unveil his glory and that this amazing miracle, this famous story that we've all heard of, the feeding of the 5,000 would take place. So again, the question we need to ask is, why? Why in the world does he ask Philip, where are we going to be able to buy bread? Why does he ask that? And the answer is right there in verse 6. We're told that Jesus said this, notice, to test him. To test him. When Jesus tests your faith, it is always so that your faith will grow. In fact, the book of James tells us in the New Testament, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So what we have right here in this story is kind of an inside look of how Jesus grows the faith of his disciples. And the reason he asked the question to Philip is in order to test him. And Philip responds to Jesus' question. How does he respond? He does it by calculating the need. Notice in verse 7, Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Now to give you a sense of proportion here, some of your translations probably say 200 denarii. A denarius was about one day's wage. What Philip is saying here is about 200 days worth of wages would not be enough to purchase sufficient bread for the size of this crowd that is coming. So thinking in terms of modern terms now, if we take, for example, a salary of $50,000 a year, 200 days wages, 200 working days or something, somewhere within the range of $40,000, what Philip is saying in today's terms is, Jesus, if we had $40,000, that's not going to help this problem. Just to give you a sense of proportion. So what Philip does immediately when he, asks, he is asked that question by Jesus, he calculates the need. In other words, what he's doing is he's basically like, how big is the problem? What do we need? What is the size and the scale of this need? And what's fascinating is that while Philip goes immediately into calculating the scale of the need, another one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, he goes and he does a quick survey of the available resources. And we learn that there really isn't much. Because watch what happens in verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves, two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So you have Philip who says, this need is overwhelming. And then over here you have Andrew that says the resources available are practically nothing. They're hopelessly inadequate. You see, this story is a story that speaks to all the times when your faith is tested. Because you're faced with an unexpected and overwhelming problem. And you simply do not have what it takes to meet the need. That's what it speaks to. So let me ask you, where in your life is there something today that feels like it's beyond you? Where you're just like, God, I don't have the strength for this. I don't have the stamina for this. I don't have the time for this. 
I don't have the money for this. I just don't have the ability for this. And you've come to a place where you're stretched. And you're calculating the scale of the problem. And you just say, I don't have what it takes. I just really don't. Well, if you can identify with that, that's exactly what we have before us in the scriptures today. There will be times when all of us come to a place that Philip and Andrew are in. And as Jesus tests their faith, they just don't know what to do. And when you come to a place in your life, that all of us will come to that place, by the way. But when you do, you, you just don't know what to do. The most important thing for you to remember is that Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. That's what's so wonderful about this section of the story that we're looking at. Jesus knew what he was going to do. Philip was one of the first followers of Jesus, along with Andrew, Peter, and John. You might be tempted to think that Philip, having been a disciple of Jesus for some time, that when Jesus asks him that question and he starts calculating, Jesus, it would cost about 200 denarii to buy bread for a crowd like this. Part of you wants to think that he's going to say, but you know what, Jesus, we've got you, so we're going to be okay. But Philip doesn't do that. Philip calculates the need. Andrew surveys the resources. But both of them calculated without Christ. Christ wasn't in the equation. And when you do that, when you calculate without Christ, what happens is that you're left with a sense of your own inadequacy. Haven't you ever experienced that before? When we look at the scale of the problem, when we look at what's available in regards to meeting whatever need that it is, we feel our own inadequacy. And why is that? Because we're calculating the whole situation without Jesus Christ. And this instinct that we have to, to calculate apart from Christ, it actually runs pretty deep, even in a believer's heart. And that's why we need to pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We all have battles with unbelief, no matter how long we've been following Jesus for. Take, for instance, Philip and Andrew in this story. When Jesus tests our faith, what happens is that the unbelief lurks somewhere deep within our hearts. It gets exposed. And the same thing happened in the Old Testament. Really famous story. God's people were brought out of Egypt and miraculously brought across the Red Sea as God himself parted the waters. But when they got to the other side, it wasn't long before they began to complain and grumble. And they actually ask a question. It's recorded in one of the Psalms that God's people said, Psalm 78, verse 19, Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Just think about that. This is staggering. God has just parted the Red Sea. Can you imagine a greater miracle than that? And they're like, yeah, we know that God did that. We know he parted the Red Sea. But we're really not sure that God can spread a table in the wilderness. How is he going to feed a community of two million people in the desert? And it wasn't that they had forgotten the Lord. These are believing people. The Israelites were believing people. It was that they had in their minds that there was just some sort of limitation of what God himself is able to do. And so they thought that a spreading of the table in the wilderness was beyond his range. And if you're a Bible person, you probably 
already know that God did, in fact, spread a table in the wilderness. He provided manna. There was bread in the desert that he used to sustain a crowd of more than two million people, scholars say. And he sustained them for years. And get this, and now, this God that did that in the Old Testament is actually standing right next to Philip in the flesh. The God who provided manna in the Old Testament is in the flesh. That's Jesus Christ. And Philip is figuring how much it would cost to buy bread for 20,000 people when next to him in the flesh is the very one who sustained in the desert 2 million people. Jesus knew what he would do. And Jesus will bring all of us at some point in our lives, maybe often in our lives, to a place where we feel overwhelmed by our need and the inadequacy of our own resources. We're often tempted to, in our unbelief that lurks within, even the believing heart, we're tempted to calculate without Christ. And when that happens, when we are overwhelmed by a sense of our own inadequacy, what we need to remember at that point is that Jesus already knows what to do. So observation number one, Jesus knows what he is doing. Observation two, Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted. Look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Now, we need to remember here that, that weak faith, which is what Philip and Andrew had, which is what many of us have, the question we need to ask is, how does weak faith grow? When you feel overwhelmed by a great need that is pressing in on you, when you're just so aware of the limitations and the inadequacies of your own resources, there's a kind of, almost like a paralysis that can creep in at that point. And it comes from lamenting the limitations of your own faith. As long as we get fixated on what we don't know, whether it's what we cannot see or what we cannot understand or what we think we cannot do, as long as we're doing that, we're going to find ourselves in almost kind of like a swirling cycle of being stuck and unable to move forward. And that's where Philip and Andrew were, except that Jesus told them to do something, and they did it. Notice Jesus said, have the people sit down. And these disciples, along with the others, they immediately obey the word of Jesus. And I would submit to you and myself today, this morning, that faith grows by obeying Jesus, even if you don't know what he's doing. Jesus knows what he is going to do. The disciples have no idea what Jesus is going to do. Jesus says, get them to sit down. And in the Gospel of Mark, he tells us that the disciples had them sit down in groups of 50, groups of 100. Why? I don't know. It's interesting, though. I can, can imagine them trying to do this, the 12 disciples trying to organize all of that. That would be a nightmare. But they don't really know why, but Jesus said to do it. So guess what? They obey Jesus. And when they're all seated, what that does is it almost creates this sense of expectation now. I mean, this could really be embarrassing. The disciples are in a position of being profoundly aware of their weakness, of their own faith, the inadequacy of their own resources. 
and the overwhelming nature of the problem that they're facing. And what do they do? They act in simple obedience to the word of Jesus. And once again, when, when we're stuck with thinking, I don't know this, I don't know that, I don't know what the Lord is doing, I can't understand, I'm so limited on resources, and on and on and on, the first way that our faith will grow is that even when you don't know what Jesus is doing, you simply act in obedience to what he tells you to do in the scriptures. The obedience of the disciples was an act of faith. And Philip and the others give this amazing example of it. It was faith that was not disappointed because it was faith that was in Jesus Christ. And those who trust in Jesus are never put to shame. John tells us what Jesus did. Notice in verse 11. This is, this is remarkable. It says, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. A miracle took place in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ in which food that had not existed was brought into being. It was created. And this is something that only God can do. And here is God in the flesh, and he's doing just that. And I need to remind you again, John wants us to know that these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you, by believing, may have life in his name. John wants us to know, as he narrates the story, that the crowd had, notice, as much food as they wanted. Remember what Philip said? Not even 200 days' wages would be enough to give this size of a crowd even a bite. Not even a snack for 200 wages, 200 days of wages. What Jesus gives is not a little, but he gives an abundance. This is not a snack. This is a feast we're talking about. And what's the whole point with regards to the fragments? It's this. Uh, they're emphasized, notice in verses 12 and 13, notice, when, all, when, when they had all enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the twelve baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. That's an awful lot of words about leftovers. There's more said about the leftovers than there is about the miracle. And it's interesting, but why is that? First of all, I think it's because it's evidence that a miracle really took place. But then secondly, it shows that God lavishly supplies for his people. But then thirdly, there's something else even here. It shows us that we ought to never waste what God has provided. We're accountable as stewards for everything that God has placed into our hands. And just because he lavishly provides it, there's no reason to waste what he provides. So here are these disciples, right? Let's review. They're at the point where they seat the crowd. They have no clue what Jesus is about to do, but they trust Jesus. And faith grows. The disciples' faith grows as they step out in obedience. Your faith, my faith, will not grow as long as we're in this cycle of saying, I don't understand this, I don't know, I feel overwhelmed. But rather when we say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, and therefore I will by faith do what he says, even if I don't understand what he's doing. That's exactly what the disciples do here in this story, and their faith grows. Faith grows not only when 
acting in obedience when you don't know what he is doing. Faith grows by seeing that Christ is not limited by the weakness of our faith. Jesus is, as stated in Ephesians chapter 3, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can all ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Let me ask you, what would happen if Jesus had acted only according to the faith of the disciples? The answer is that there would be no miracle, because that faith wasn't there. And I don't know about you, but I think we should all be grateful that Christ acts here according to the abundance of his grace, not to the weakness of the disciples' faith. Christ is able to do more than any person in this congregation right now thinks that he can. God is greater than our highest and best thought about him. And seeing that actually helps faith. Think about it this way. If Jesus was limited in what he can do by the extent of your faith, that in itself would be faith diminishing. In other words, if Jesus is restricted to the range of my faith, that he can't do very much. And Jesus, if Jesus can't do very much, then that is a reason for my faith to diminish. So we would go on this downward spiral, and there's really only one place that that can end, no faith at all. So how is faith going to grow? Faith is going to grow when you begin to grasp that Jesus Christ is able to do more than you think. When we realize that even our best thought about Jesus is actually short of his range of his ability. When we find ourselves saying, can he spread a table in the wilderness? The answer is you may not think that he can, but he can do far more than you can ever dare to imagine. How is faith going to grow? How is faith going to progress? We're seeing it right here. Jesus is testing in order to bring faith to a greater strength and a greater maturity. How is it happening? As Philip steps forward in obedience, even when he doesn't understand what Jesus is doing. I think that's a word for someone here today. You may not know what Jesus is doing, but you have to step forward in obedience anyway. Faith grows when you realize that far from being limited by the poverty of your faith, he is able to exceedingly, abundantly do above all that we ask or can imagine. And that's how faith grows. We see that Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus can be trusted. And now thirdly, Jesus can never be manipulated. Jesus can never be manipulated. This is a really important theme that we see here. And it comes whenever we come to one of the great miracles in the New Testament. Notice what it says in verse 14. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. I want you to notice the reaction of the crowd. You notice throughout this chapter the reaction of the crowd versus the reaction of the disciples. And both of those are very, very different. Notice the reaction of the crowd. The crowd sees the glory of what Jesus Christ is able to do. And as soon as they see that he has divine power, they want to harness it and they want to use it to the pursuit of their own agenda. And the world never changes. We see that today. They seize the moment right there in the desert and they decide on an act of political defiance towards Rome. That's the significance of them wanting to make Jesus their king. They wanted to do it by force, the Bible says. They wanted to seize him. They wanted to compel him to be the front face of their agenda. 
And their agenda was a good agenda. They wanted to change the structures of their own country. It was a political agenda. They wanted to get rid of the Romans, the repression of this colonial empire that had been brutally oppressed the people of God during the time of Jesus. They wanted change, is what they wanted. And they figured, this guy Jesus, he's got great power. If we can get his name and his banner tied to our cause, then we are going to succeed. So the Bible says that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. But did you notice what it says in verse 15, at the end of verse 15? Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So they tries to seize him. They try to seize Jesus, and what happens is that they lose him. Let me try to personalize this in a question that has lots of application for us, both broadly and narrowly, and here it is. What is the thing that you would most want Jesus Christ to do for you? Something that you really want changed in your life. A prayer that you most want to see answered. A cause that you would most want to see advanced. An evil that you would most want to see eradicated. And your mind, if your mind is anything like my mind, it probably goes like this. If Jesus has all the power, why doesn't he just use it for this? I think the big temptation is that when you see something of the glory of Jesus, you will see Jesus as a means to an end. You'll see Jesus as a means to your end. If I can just make Jesus mine, then I can use Jesus' power to get what I long for. What I want to see this morning, what I want you to see this morning, what I want all of us to see this morning, is this. If you try to use Jesus, in the end you lose Jesus. If you try to use Jesus, in the end you lose Jesus. You see, John says that Jesus withdraws from those who tried to treat him that way. We're learning something really important about the Christian life here this morning, what the Christian faith looks like. The life of faith is not a life in which you decide what you want Jesus to do for you and then follow him if he does it. It's not a life in which you set the agenda and say, Jesus, I will follow you if you give me what I want you to give me. And here's what I want. The Christian life is a life in which you follow Jesus, you trust Jesus, you obey Jesus, even if you don't know what he is doing. And as you do that, you'll discover what Jesus is doing. And that's how it was for these disciples. That's the difference between the disciples and the crowd. And at the end of the day, all of us are either going to be one or the other, the disciples or the crowd. If you try to use Jesus, you lose Jesus. But if by faith, perceiving that he is the Son of God and that life is found in him, in his name, and you say, I don't know what he's doing, but I believe that he knows what he's doing, and therefore, I will walk with him in obedience and I will trust him with faith, then you'll discover what he'll do. Lastly, Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can never be manipulated. And this last one here is just for fun. The last thing I'll say is that it is such a privilege to serve Jesus. Christ could have fed the multitude without this little boy. He could have created loaves and fish for millions, let alone thousands, out of nothing. But Christ doesn't do that. What we see in this story that we're reading today 
is that he chooses to multiply what is placed into his hands. I mean, what a privilege for that little boy. The greatest moment of his life was when he put something in the hands of Jesus. I want to invite the band to come up, and as they're getting settled in, ready to lead us in a time of worship, let me just close by saying this. When we give and when we serve, we're essentially saying to Jesus, Lord, I'm putting this into your hands. You take it. You use it. You multiply it. You do with it as you will. It's really a privilege to serve Jesus. And what a privilege for these disciples to allow the blessing of being the distributors of the bread and the fish. Because John simply tells us that Jesus distributed the food, but the Gospel of Mark actually gives additional detail of what Jesus did through the disciples. In Mark chapter 6, the Bible says, Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. He gave them to, notice, his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided two fish among them all. You see, Jesus, he could have given the bread and the fish to every person directly, which may or may not have taken a long time, but he doesn't do it that way. He's the one who creates this miraculous gift of food, this abundant supply, and he puts it into the hands of the disciples. And they, the disciples, are the ones who are responsible for distributing the food to everyone in the crowd. I mean, can you imagine that? Just being one of the disciples, just taking an armful of bread, an armful of fish, and like how much bread and fish can you carry at one time? And you can take it and give it to these folks who are sitting in these groups of 50 and 100, and then you go back and get more. These disciples are runners for Jesus. And they're receiving from Jesus and they're giving out in his name. And every time they went back, they discovered that there still was more to get. Because his hands are never empty. The more they received from Jesus in order to give to others, their faith was strengthened. Because you never come to Jesus Christ and find that his hands are empty. May God give every one of us a sense of joy and privilege of being servants of Jesus. Listen, if you've never come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity to do that today. Maybe for the first time, you just put a stake in the ground and say, I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to come to Jesus through faith and repentance. I want to surrender my life to you. And if you do that, I want you to let us know on one of those Weekend Connect cards that are located in the back. I would love to sit down with you and pray with you. Our leadership here, we would love to do that for you. But for those of us that are followers of Christ, let me just say, may God give to every one of us a sense of joy and a sense of privilege of being servants of Jesus, receiving from him and giving it to others, coming to him and knowing and proving that his hands are never empty. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want to acknowledge your presence here today. And God, I just ask that you would increase our faith. Lord, thank you for your sustaining grace. We know that you're all that we need. And we know that you're doing amazing things in and through your people. We praise you and all God's people said, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.rittmangrace.org or email us at rittmangbc.org 
at AOL.com.